0: If you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 5, as you can see on the board. We're going to read at some point verses uh, five, uh, 15 through 20. And this morning I'm launching this four part mini series, which is simply entitled The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, part one. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And uh, just wanting to build a little bit of a foundation for the other three preachers who will be coming um, um, after me in the next three weeks. Uh, as we talk into this uh, incredible, critical, crucial arena, this thing about the Holy Spirit. You know, according to Google, and Google is always right, isn't he she? Or is it They. Anyway, there are over 4,000 religions and denominations that exist around the world today. Did you know that? Over 4,000 belief systems, that kind of thing. Now, of all the religions and the denominations, 4,000 plus, Christianity has one key point of difference from all of the others. And that point of difference, churches, and I say this with um, fear and trembling at one level, but with incredible enthusiasm and passion and joy at the other. That point of difference is the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Notice I said person. It's not a thing. In fact, the New Testament always refers to the Holy Spirit as he, not they, or she, it's in the male, um, uh, what's the word, imperative, the male whatever, it's always in that way, scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is not another God, small g, he is in essence, in essence and substance, God himself, did you catch that? This is critical, church, as we go into this series and understanding this series as we track from one week to the other. The Holy Spirit is God. And as such, He is co-equal and co-eternal with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, the Son. So what does that mean? It means when the Holy Spirit comes to live in each one of us, It is God the Father who comes to live in you. Not somebody else, not something else. It is God residing in you. Mark 1.10 says this. Here's Jesus, the physical Jesus in his human form. He's going to be baptized, and he comes up out of the water, and he saw heaven being torn over and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So there was something else that was coming in addition to who Jesus was. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. And as a person, the Holy Spirit has personality, And he has feelings. He can become sad. He can become angry. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit, church. Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is so important to understand. I believe, church, that individually and corporately, there is no greater need that we all have than it is to receive the Holy Spirit. No greater need for believers and unbelievers. Well, believers have got the Holy Spirit anyway. There's a, um, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole because it might offend a couple of you, but there is a difference, in my opinion, between the um, baptism of the Holy Spirit and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. But that's another subject. Shall we leave it at that? Okay, Paul, move on. Thank you, I will. And it's because of the Holy Spirit that we are able to overcome the power of sin and guilt and fear that everyone in this room, including myself, experiences from time to time. We are able to overcome that stuff because of the Holy Spirit. Not any other reason, but because of him living in us. Therefore, the primary and the most essential need for sinners, and that's All of us in this auditorium, church, put your hand up if you're not a sinner. Have a look around, church. No hands in the air. The primary, most essential need for sinners is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree? You know, of the 4,000 plus religions and belief systems that I mentioned earlier, Christianity, church, and only Christianity has as the most important point of difference, the presence and power and person of the Holy Spirit. Someone say amen. Amen. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, You'll notice we're going to be doing communion later on this morning and that we're going to do at the end. So don't worry, we, we won't miss it out. We will be having communion, but we're going somewhere with this. So stay with me. The Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus he begins by describing what God's plan, God, this is God's master plan for, um, for the church. And uh, 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 Ephesians 1.10 says, His master plan is to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, that is Jesus Christ. Paul's letter focuses then on two persons of the Trinity. The first is what God did through the person and the ministry of Jesus. Yeah, His time on earth. And still doing it today. But also, number two, through the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit Church is here right now. He's talking to us this morning. He spoke through Robert this morning. He spoke through the team that were in the prayer meeting this morning. And that translated from there physically into this auditorium this morning. He's speaking into your hearts and your lives and your minds. Some of you will be sitting there. You know that the Holy Spirit has said something to you during worship. Where's Mike Collins, by the way? Where's Mike? Where is he? That was just you at the top of your game, Mike, this morning. But let me tell you something, mate. Sorry to steal your thunder. Was the Holy Spirit in you, which you allowed to work through you? Well done, bro. Well done. That's what God does. It's what God does, to church. He's here right now. He's ministering to us. So here's my question. Brenda, what's God saying to you right now? What's the Holy Spirit saying to me? You right now. Because he will be talking. He's not silent. He will be saying stuff. So just, we, uh, just before we uh, dive into this morning's text, and we'll come back to that in a second, um, I just want to touch on one other critical point in laying the foundation for this series going forward. Um, in, in Ephesians, um, that, that, that unity is also a major theme of the book of Ephesians. Okay? All the stuff I've just said just before, that's important. But this is also important to understand this. And I want to explain this issue of unity that the Bible describes that can so easily be misunderstood. Now listen to this. Nowhere in the Bible, absolutely nowhere, are we commanded to create unity. Nowhere. We are not commanded to create unity, and for good reason. As human history has proved time and again, if unity were left up to us to create, we would not be able to sustain it. We would mess it up every time. Just the the dilemma of human nature. So we cannot create unity, nor does the Bible ask us To create unity. But we are commanded to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Can you see the difference? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Our job is not to create it. Our job is to intentionally work to keep it. We are responsible to do all we can so that unity is alive and well amongst us. That does not mean, church, that we should all think the same and say the same and do the same. That's not unity. That's been silly. We, we are entitled to have our opinions and our different perspectives on things. Absolutely we are. But how we go about that is absolutely critical to unity or disunity, yeah? And the reason why I'm sharing that with you this morning, church, you're probably thinking, well, there's a problem in our church. No, there is not. But I'm sharing that with you this morning because we're doing a series on the Holy Spirit and one thing the enemy will do right from the outset is try to disunify us. That's exact, he's a master at it. That's exactly what he'll try to do. You know, Seb and I meet every Tuesday morning in my office and usually our meetings are pretty good. Aren't they, Seb? He has to say yes. That's right. <laughs> but every now and again, we don't necessarily agree. You know, Seb has his own thoughts, they're usually wrong, and I have mine. And I... <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, so, church, I share this with you this morning because disunity is the one thing, the one thing that will break the presence of the Spirit of God in any relationship. So we've got to keep it. We do all we can to keep the unity. Okay, which segues very nicely into our text, Ephesians 5, 15 to 20, coming up on the screen, we're going to read it. He begins by saying this, the Apostle Paul, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. As we did this morning, by the way, when Robert got us to come together and pray for one another. Did you feel a lift in the, just the atmosphere? Al, just that. Yeah, Wonderful. Uh, sing and make music from the heart to the Lord. You know, when we come in this morning and the, and the worship team um, uh, start with, with, with singing, it's not just about fast songs or slow songs. That's just a, that's a vehicle for the Spirit of God to do what He's doing. That's all that is. In fact, the, the, the music so much is not important as the words are. They're quite important. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, with all that in mind, let's pray. Father, we welcome your presence here. We speak, Lord, words of life and hope and encouragement and permission to you, God, to come and fill this place afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that each Christian carries you within them. We know that. But we're talking more than that, Lord. We're talking about a manifest presence of God coming and doing what we cannot do. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, into this place this morning. Father, open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to hear your word, to take your word into our lives personally, to say to myself and ourselves, God, what are you saying to me this morning? What are you asking of me this morning? That I may become more like you. In Jesus' name. So my first major point out of this text is we are to live our Christian walk carefully and thoughtfully. You know, someone has rightly said that we do the things that we value most. That would be true, wouldn't it? The things that we value, that's what we naturally do it's not a struggle to do those things. One of the things I value is coffee at a cafe, I do it quite easily, really simply, no problem. You know, generally speaking, our job, our education, our family, our home, our hobbies, our health, our dress and appearance are things that we value in this life, and I'm sure you would all agree with that. Paul's statement says this be very careful how you live. And it's a reminder. It's why he starts with it. It's a reminder that as followers of Christ, how we live our Christian life really does matter. In fact, it matters a whole lot. The New uh, New English Bible says it more urgently. It says this, Be most careful how you conduct yourselves. Paul tells us how. He goes on, and he says, "This we 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 being careful with the way that we live. We do it by making the most of every opportunity." It, and he contrasts two types of people: the wise and the unwise. And the truth is, you know, we all have the same amount of time at our disposal every week, don't we? Twenty-four hours in the day, uh, one hundred and sixty-eight hours in the week, and it goes on and on. Everyone is allotted exactly the same amount of time. But wise people use it to the fullest possible advantage. They seize the moment. They seize the day. They grab hold of the opportunities that come their way. Wise people know that once the opportunity has gone by, they will probably never get it back again. That's being wise. That's what the apostle is talking about. You probably won't be able to recover that which has passed you by. So make the most of the opportunities that God brings. Because everyone gets opportunities. The great theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote this. In fact, it's coming up resolved, this is Edward saying to himself, resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way that I possibly can. So it's not just the Holy Spirit doing this all for you without you doing anything. It's a partnership where you work together with him for the best possible outcome. You know, a wise person marks out their course They set their sails and they guide the rudder until they reach their destination. You know, circumstances come, church, you could all identify with this. In the midst of all of that, you set your course, you're on the rudder, you're going in the right direction, but circumstances come at you, things happen that you hadn't planned, that would be true. Try to put you off your course, try to steer you in another direction, but a wise person knows they hold on to that tiller. They keep their eyes fixed firmly, on jesus you know there's a sermon preached here last week where's don where are you don you're somewhere over there you know mate not only did i love the message but you showed me something last week about um who's the guy that leapt out of the boat Peter. peter peter um he walked on water twice i'd never seen that see that's revelation I'd never seen it like that. After Jesus pulled him up out of the water, how did he get back in the boat? It was cool, wasn't it? God's always speaking to us, folks. So you set your sail, you make sure that you're going in the right direction. Stuff will come at you in life and it will cause you um, uh, to go off course. That's what the enemy does. But bring yourself back on course, steer back. On the course that you set before. Bring yourself back. And it's the Holy Spirit in us. That empowers us to be able to do that. Paul here is essentially saying. That the first sign of living wisely. Is to live our Christian walk. Carefully and thoughtfully. By making good use of the time. That we've all been granted. Number two out of this passage. Wise believers take time to understand The will of God. They don't only know about God's will, they understand it for themselves. The will of God for your life, Bruce, is probably different than mine. Would that be true? Excuse me. (laughs) That is so true. You know, so it's it's not just, I mean, there is God's um, general will. God's general will, what would that be, church? Tell me. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself, that would be one, wouldn't it? That would be true for all of us, yeah? But then there is a specific will for your life. And it'll be different than mine, I suspect. So there is a world of difference between knowing the will of God and understanding it for your life. Verse 17, that word understanding, it strongly suggests engaging our minds in the process of discovering God's will for your life. Don't put your brain in neutral. Don't do that. It's not wrong to carefully think things through before making a decision. Thinking, considering, reflecting is not a lack of faith, it's wise. That's smart thinking. Church, not only is that not thinking this stuff through wrong, it's also dangerous. Again, I want to quote, um, I want to quote uh, a Warren Worsby who says this, We discover the will of God as he transforms our mind. That's Romans 12. And this transformation is the result of doing a couple of things. Reading our Bibles. Picking the Word of God up and having a regular time in your schedule to read the Word of God. Understanding it. And the second thing, most critical thing, is talk to God about it. Prayer. Just talk to Him. Bring it in right there into the center of everything you're doing. Say, God, what am I going to do with this this situation? How are we going to resolve this issue? Bring God into it. That'll help you understand the will of God for your life. Here's the point. God gave us a brain, church, and he expects us to use it. Use it wisely, gathering the facts, examining them, weighing them up and praying about them. God does not simply want us to know his will. He wants us to understand his will. Because when you understand his will, that's what empowers you to do his will. Does that make sense, church? Is everyone comfortable? Are you warm? On Wednesday, coming, see there are nine heat pumps in this room, I think. Only five of them are working. So after Wednesday, all nine should be working again. They had to buy four brand new ones. So there you go. We're getting there. We're getting there. I want to say this again, church, it is the understanding of his will that empowers us to know what to do with his will. And the third thing, the third part to this, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is a definite article. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul has already told the Ephesian church not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Now he says to them, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this church is where things start to get really exciting. They sure do. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that imply? Well, it implies that we're leaky vessels. It implies that we can run out of his presence in our lives. That's what it implies. In fact, I think it's quite succinct. <laughs> to be filled suggests to me very strongly that when I came to faith in <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus Christ, and the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit fell upon me in such an incredibly powerful, demonstrative way. It was unreal. Um, but you know, a few months later. You know, Mike, I wasn't kind of operating in that space. You know, life, we started having children and mortgages and all sorts of things like that. Life just happens, doesn't it? And what can happen is you you have this incredible encounter with God and it's real and it's genuine and it is God. But the stuff can just leak out of you. That's what happened. So we need to come back and be refilled. That's what I'm talking about. Now, I said earlier to you, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of the baptism of the Holy Spirit um, um, versus being filled with the Holy Spirit, but let's do it anyway. (laughs) What I believe is, without upsetting some of the theologians here, what I believe is is that we leak and we need to be topped up. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Anyone disagree? Put your hand up. We're all on the same page. That's as far as I'll go with it. You know, being filled with the Holy Spirit has generated much discussion and confusion uh, today. And it's important we study Paul's teaching here very, very carefully. Paul first draws a comparison between alcoholic intoxication and the Holy Spirit's fullness. He says this, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It's worth noting that in Paul's day, and in context here, in Paul's day, the heathen cult of Dionysius, I think you pronounce it, the heathen cult Dionysius regarded intoxication as a means of receiving inspiration. In other words, they would deliberately get drunk and believing that they would receive something positive as a result of that. Yeah? That, that's, that's what the cult believed. Yeah. Don't go there, Paul. Okay. It's worth noting. Now let me explain, though, what Paul the Apostle means here. A person who is drunk, we say, is under the influence of alcohol. Yes? That's what we say. And certainly a spirit-filled Christian. This is a genuine move of God's spirit I'm talking about here. A genuine move of God's spirit um, for a believer. They are under the influence or power of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with that? Yep, okay. But there the comparison ends. As Paul um, puts these two things in contrast, one against the other. The spirit of um, alcohol and the Holy Spirit. One's a small s, alcoholic side of it, One's a capital S, meaning it's divine. And he recognizes, you know, that, I mean, the Bible's very honest. And certainly the Apostle Paul was pretty down to earth as well. He recognized that there are pressures in life. There are demands that come upon us so so severe that we feel some need for some artificial stimulation. I have been there before I was a Christian. In fact, afterwards too. Am I the only one? No, didn't think so. We've all been there. Paul recognises that. But he warns, don't let it be wine or any other artificial stimulant because it so easily leads to lack of control. And he uses the word debauchery there. Um, And the word translated debauchery is the Greek word that means without any limits, with reckless abandonment and a loss of control. That's what it means. It is the complete opposite to what Galatians 5 says as one of the fruits of the Spirit, which is self-control, isn't it? Galatians 5, one of the nine fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. So the, 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 the losing control of one's faculties when it comes to the Holy Spirit coming upon us so you have no clue what's going on and you're, you're gibberish and, and all the rest of that kind of stuff I would suggest to you is a spirit but perhaps not the Holy Spirit it's not a lack of, of self-control when it's God you have an understanding of what's going on K doesn't that make you feel confident? Yes, that's right. See, when God comes upon us, um, that, that, uh, coming back to, uh, I was sharing with you about when I came to faith that day, I knew exactly what was going on. I had my full faculties about me, but I could not stand. I physically could not stand. I said to the two guys, one who led me to the Lord, I said, can I sit down? Because if I don't, I'm going to fall down. And I knew what was going on. It wasn't alcohol, it wasn't drugs, it wasn't all those other things. it was the Holy Spirit. And that's how he operates. He's you know, church, let me say this: When the Spirit of God comes upon us and begins to move, and, and whether it's a salvation issue or, or a refilling. If what you see happening doesn't come with his warm compassion for people and his sane humanity, you can dismiss it. Yeah? See, the Spirit of God is always concerned for the person. Jesus has compassion on people. So he's not going to embarrass you. He's not going to make you Feel something that's not going to add value to your life. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Isn't that awesome? It's a command. Um, how are we off the time? Oh, we're good. Um, you might be thinking now, if you know your Bible reasonably well, in Acts, um, when, they, when the disciples came down from the upper room, um, uh, they were speaking in other tongues. And there's a whole lot of things were going on, and the general population saw all this happening and said they must be drunk remember that where it says that in Acts well let me explain what was actually going on there it's true that at the day of Pentecost some said the spirit filled disciples were drunk that is true they did say that but these were the minority of believers which Luke describes as quote unquote others Luke describes them as others not the enemy Just others. The majority on the other hand had no such thoughts in their minds. They were so amazed to hear the mighty works of God being announced in their own languages that they seemed like they were intoxicated. But they weren't. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And any physician will tell you this. I think I'm right. We've got a couple of doctors here. That alcohol, now can I get this word correct? Pharmacologically? Simon, help me out here. Anyway, any physician will tell you, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant. Alcohol is not a stimulant. It's actually a depressant. But what the Holy Spirit does is the exact opposite. He stimulates every faculty, the mind, the intellect, the heart, and the will. That's what he does. He makes us alive again in Christ. We come alive again because of the Holy Spirit in us. To quote one of my favorites, he's now passed, but John Stott, he says, it's a serious mistake to suppose that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is a kind of spiritual inebriation in which we lose control of ourselves. It is not. At least someone agrees. That's good. I'm not on my own here. Christians get their stimulation, church. Everyone should hear this. We all, as followers of Jesus, get our stimulation from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, Brian. Yeah. It's awesome. really is. When God begins to do that, The Apostle Paul made the contrast between being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit, capital S. And here's the contrast. One causes you to be out of control. The other enables you to be in control. Before I was a Christian, I understood that physically. Just take my word for that. I understood that. I can tell you the difference is huge. One is counterproductive. The other is productive. One makes you powerless, the other empowers you. One brings you sorrow, where the other brings you joy. For a Christian, Ephesians 5:18 is not a promise or even an option. It is actually a command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command. Yeah, just to clarify, some believe that this is a once for all filling. I don't believe that. You'll be pleased to hear that, Miriam. I think you told me off one day about this issue. I'm sure you did. And, and I came to your way of thinking. So there you go. Yes. There you go. Um, where was I? I've lost my place. Um, yeah, I don't believe it's a, one, a once for all filling. I do believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is once for all. I do believe that. The point of salvation. But we leak. I do. Yeah, Robert. You know, you just do. You just run out of steam. Need to be filled again and again and again. So here's the, th- here's the thing, church. As we come to communion, I'm reminded again um, that I said something I said earlier that uh, Paul said we can quench the Holy Spirit. You remember when I said that? Uh, 430, I think, Ephesians 430. Somewhere in there. It's in Ephesians. He reminds us that we can quench the Holy Spirit, who is already in you, by the way. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you already have the Holy Spirit in you. But we can quench Him in us. We can kind of hold Him down, if you like, hold Him at arm's length. And we do this in a number of ways. Um, the Bible describes how we can impede the work of the Holy Spirit in us and then through us. Number one would be this, and there's probably more. We quench the Spirit whenever we despise prophetic utterances. So when a prophetic word comes, in one sense, Robert, this morning, you were sharing in a prophetic way over the life of the service. And did you see the response? No one here was putting that down, at least not that I saw. So God was able to move, and there was a unity about that. Did you see that? Did you sense that? But people that, that um, uh, despise prophetic utterances, 1 Thessalonians 5.20, can quench the Holy Spirit. Another way that we can quench the Spirit is, is whenever we diminish His activity. We undermine it. We say, ah, oh, just they're all drunk. They're all drunk. When we do that and diminish his activity, Romans eight fifteen to 16 and Galatians 4 talks about that. Another way that we can um, quench the Holy Spirit is when we willfully ignore what God is saying to us. When we willfully do that. We know God has spoken. You're absolutely convinced. God, you've said this to me. But then you go, I'm not moving. That's it. No more. Don't come any closer. That will quench the Holy Spirit. Another way um, that we quench the Holy Spirit is when we harbor or we allow or we accommodate unforgiveness in our spirit. And by the way, that unforgiveness could be that you've got an issue with God, between you and God. Sometimes we can be, uh, uh, we, we can un- What's the word? what am I trying to say? We cannot forgive God, blame Him for whatever. So, unforgiveness can come in that way. Unforgiveness towards others, that's usually the biggest one. But here's one that undoes so many people when you cannot forgive yourself. Hello, some people this morning. When we cannot forgive ourselves. Now, you may have to work through that issue. I'm talking about forgiving oneself. You may have to work that through. It may take some time. That's fine. But if God has forgiven you, don't you think you owe him to forgive yourself? Yeah? If the master of the universe has forgiven you, and he has, and you're still holding on to your own stuff, and "I, I cannot get beyond this, God, you really do need to deal with that issue. Because if you don't, it will quench the Holy Spirit, who is already in you, it will quench Him working through you. He won't up and leave. He's still there. But it will impact what you do. Church, this is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of effectiveness. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, we diminish what He can do and will do through us. When we grieve Him, we diminish that. Georgia, can you come on up, please, young lady? Before we take communion, I want you to ask God if there is anything in you that could be quenching the Holy Spirit and preventing him from working through you. You ask him that yourself. My encouragement to you is, if you come up with an answer to that, the Holy Spirit shows you something. When the time is appropriate, do something about it. God wants his church, that's us, to be absolutely free agents, to be used by him to do whatever it is that he's wanting to do through us. But if you harbor that stuff, it will diminish his ability to work through you.